welcome to the BTN Europe Week in Review podcast. My name is Mark Ferry. I'll be your host on these podcasts for the next year while digital editor Molly Dyson is on maternity leave. I'll be sure to share any news we have from her in the next few weeks. Now, Molly had very kindly assembled a group of respected industry experts for the Week in Review over the past weeks who've had interesting discussions on COVID, COVID, NDC and COVID. And I'm pleased to welcome them again as guests today. Hi, Karen Hutchings. I'm the Global Head of Travel Meetings and Events at EY. Daniel Tolos, I heard for Nike as your Travel Manager for EMEA. My name's Dave Bishop. I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at Grey Doors. We're a TMC based in the UK, but we're the second oldest IR to agent steering systems. Hello, my name's Paul Tilstone, and I'm Managing Partner of Festive Road, the consultancy on a mission to create better travel and meetings management. Delighted to be here. Dave, your strapline was interesting. IR to agent yeah, steering. something to say these yeah, days. So we, yeah, so we were we started two years uh, two years after Delta formed in 1927, but we actually started issuing IATA tickets in 1946. So the oldest agency is actually friends of ours in Italy in Bologna. So they're about a few months older than we are. So, but yeah, we're when we'll be here for another 93 odd years as well, hopefully. It's good to, to hear that, and it's, it's really relevant to the discussion today because we're going to be talking about supply chain viability and air supply chain in, in particular and how um, corporates are going to be able to manage shifting supply and demand for business travel in, in a COVID world. And one that's a, a set against a, a backdrop, you know, news this week, for example, that uh, IOT has warned that the airline industry is going to burn through $77 billion in cash during the second half of 2020 and possibly a further 5 Six billion dollars per month in 2021, um, and we also heard this week about EasyJet making the first loss in its 25-year history. So, what I'm interested in knowing is is how do you actually build a travel program that has resilience built into it if airlines potentially are going to go bust in in the coming months? Well, the certain amount of flexibility is always uh, wise beyond the crisis. I mean, there have been times when one or another airline was was at risk. I think it's it's quite business as usual type of, of, of approach for, for travel managers to monitor some of these airlines. I think also that many TMCs are in the best place to really have that information at hand. So I think it's, it's nothing really exceptional right now that, you know, the travel corporate buyers have to perform with, with their TMC partners. I guess the, the, the question is, there's, there's a fair amount of, of new routes or, or the old routes are restored, I would say. So in terms of network, most major airlines are, are kind of getting there. There's a good coverage. But when it comes to frequency, I think there's, there's a real uh, challenge. And, and that's where I think many companies have difficulties to avoid certain airlines simply because of that. I think that's the current state. Uh, we'll see how public goes. I think it's interesting, Daniel. I mean, obviously, lots of airlines have, have said they're continuing to fly to their route network, but uh, with massively reduced capacity. So that may be an issue going forward. It is. Uh, and, and, you know, we see that, that uh, intra-region, many airlines are flying with very their small aircrafts, especially on routes where you have a high corporate uh, travel penetration that may create problems in terms of high detectors and, and procedures, but also uh, just just not being able to book uh, seats on those flights. So so I think it's, it's, it's an awkward time. And I think there's a, a big, there are big differences between blue factors on, on urgent destinations where, where you have different types of travelers or different types of willingness to travel and availability to travel, right? Because viability is still a question mark for many companies. I think there's a certain amount of tolerance 
or uh, whether the, the schedule's not available or the particular flight on the hour or day that you want to travel is, is not available because of restriction on capacity. But maybe the, the resilience that um, you're referring to is if, if there's an airline failure at some point, how do you, you know, and, and extend that beyond airline to to hotel group relationship or TMC or OBT or any other supply chain partner? How do you manage for that? I think Daniel's point about agility doesn't just relate to the need to ensure that you can build resilience into your program. I think it's a it's a factor of every travel program today. Even pre-COVID, you needed to start building in agility. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is, I wonder how many of the travel managers are actually taking a look at publicly available market information on the liquidity of their suppliers. And, you know, all that stuff is available. I mean, we're fortunate on the IATA Travel Manager Advisory Group, which Daniel's a part of, that we've had analysts come on and present insights into liquidity of, of airlines. And um, that's really useful to help you make decisions about the robustness of, of your supply chain. But the, I guess the last thing I'd say is I don't think there are many routes where you've got a single provider. There are often multiple providers. And I, I take the point, Daniel's shaking his head. I take the point that at this point in time, that might not well be the case. But I've no doubt that if a route goes down or an airline goes down and the route is financially viable, someone will move to fill it pretty quickly, I would have thought. We've been fortunate in the fact that we've not got a direct mandate to one particular supplier on a particular route. So we've always sort of wanted our employees to have choice. That's a little bit around, you know, recognising the volume that they travel. And I think actually in this day and age at the minute, having that choice means that you're not at risk either. Um, and your point's well made, Paul, that, you know, it goes into the, the hotel side significantly. And that's why where you don't necessarily have a preferred hotel program but look more at the dynamic pricing means you've got more opportunity of choice anyway because especially in the hotels so many aren't open at the moment so we're dealing with it every day actually on the lodging side anyways mark you kind of asked the question you know are there airlines you you could avoid i mean we're not going to mention any names but i would kind of say you know, really who is safe who is who, who really is safe i think you've got kind of three distinct sets of sets of airlines you've got those who are owned by you know a sovereign wealth fund and there's some very wealthy ones out there that you've got those private companies that have accessed you know some kind of state aid and you've got those that haven't been able to and i think really what we're looking at is airlines can't continue at this idle level you know the level of idle that we've got at the moment i think there's something like 160 billion dollars in government aid has been has been given out to airlines this year and that you know, you're right, 60, 60, 70 billion dollars of cash burden this year, which is predicted to be the same next year. So they're not looking to actually get cash positive until 2022. What we haven't seen before is airlines normally have a very bumper summer period and that thing can take you through the, the leaner, the leaner winter, winter months. And we haven't, you know, there's been, there's been none of that this year. I think one of the, and Paul probably kind of knows more about this than, than I do, but we saw recently the chief doctor for IATA saying we cannot wait for a vaccine. It is, you know, it's that critical for, for, for many different airlines. So how, how do we manage it? You know, we have to take advantage of, you know, the public information that's out there. You know, we don't, we look at, we look at liquidity. We know which airlines we think are going to be safer than others. But I think taking it down to, to Karen's point, a, a lot now depends on who's flying on a particular route. And there aren't that many planes flying at the moment. But the danger for us is when things start to spool up 
I think, Paul, you raised a kind of good question about uh, about the supply chain. You know, we're being asked now in, in RFPs about our resilience as a TMC. You know, it's, it's a common question. And we kind of answer it in a very in a very structured way, and we say, you know, if it continues at these levels, then you know we can last until you know, a, a certain date. But there, we're seeing more critical analysis of us as, and our part of the supply chain. I, I expect that will continue as we go forward. But we're really concerned that this you know, three hundred thousand dollars a minute that there's cash burn that is just devastating for an airline and i don't know until we can actually see the the planes starting to kind of we can see the planes flying in the skies again yeah i think we're going to see potentially more failures because the governments don't have uh, don't have a a bottomless bit of money to to put into this there's been some real challenges in the us where the cares act finished at the end of september president trump has, has stopped any negotiations on further support until after the election yeah, and that's and all of the airlines. You know, Doug Parker came out recently from American Airlines saying, you know, we need, we've got broad bipartisan support across the aisles to to help the airlines, but politically or for some reason or another, that's not being done. And there could be, you know, we could see some some failures coming there if something isn't done sooner rather than later. Dave, given that you've been asked questions about your resilience as a company in sourcing exercises, do you have any recommendations to buyers about what the what the pertinent questions are, what the sorts of things they should be asking to ensure that they're they're getting the right information to make decisions? Yeah, so the way we're answering it is how long we can last at this current level, because I think that's the challenge we have right now. You know, we've been asked about have we taken advantage of furlough or JSS, and we have taken advantage of JSS. There, there aren't many TMCs that have done that. Actually, I think I only know of one other. Uh, so there's been some huge second redundancy rounds going through that we've been we've been able to take part of with JSS. But really, kind of look at talk, focus on cash burn because looking historically at accounts, as I think we've mentioned earlier, really is just a lot of accounts. We're just starting to see the ones come out from March, you know, for the year ends in, in March. But they show there's no real COVID effect there. So kind of focus on for those of us that run you know, will run businesses. Cash is the key is the key element here. You know, what cash or, or banking facilities have you got to support you at, at this same level? Because looking at accounts that ended up, you know, 31st December 19 and before, pretty much is irrelevant in today, in today's, it's kind of what's happened and, and where, where are you up until now? And there's been, you know, there's been some examples where TMCs have, have massive, hugely shrunk their, shrunk their staffing to kind of, to cover that. And that's fine. And that should leave them in a relatively strong position to, to continue. You're right, though. It's a balance of cash burn and then what their service capability is. Because you could have fantastic cash burn, but you've, you've cut everything to the bone, so you can't service. Or you could have yeah. fantastic service, but you're going to last two months in the present environment. So it's yeah. that, that balance. Yeah, we haven't cut anything. And a lot of TMCs have taken the decision to be, you know, we have to still provide a 24-hour service and do all of the all of the other good things on data analysis for some tmcs uh, it might take a little longer to get those answers out sometimes because there's less people around but that's prevalent everywhere we usually we ring up call centers you'll hear you know it's going to take a little longer to answer your calls and people at home and and all this good stuff i think we're, we're very much you know the tmc community is trying to be united by having we want we want to offer that kind of full 25 service because that's what our clients are demanding but there's going to come a point in time and that when that point in time is depends on the TMC of where you know they have to take make make some pretty drastic decisions about their future survival. I know we're not necessarily going to go into it today, but we've already heard of a 
an 80-year-old TMC slash tour operator go under last month. Yeah, incredibly sad. You know, real, real awesome heritage and just can't survive. But no one is immune from this. If every, everyone is, every, the whole supply chain is at stress here. One thing I think, though, is, you know, we talk about the lanes being open and the potential of um, routes being open if there's testing either side. And I think there's some traction to think about the fact that if it's booked via the TMC, that it actually helps the TMC in the fact that it gives them real purpose in this. But also then, if we do get the lanes open, um, then it also supports the airlines. Because the reality is, is that we do need to get people back traveling again. I think we've all talked about this before, but how do we bring the whole thing together? And for me, potentially saying that if people are booked through a TMC, it gives them more rights to be able to travel because they can be tracked and traced more easily. Perhaps it's something that we should be advocating and pushing. But for me, I think it's part of this, though, about how do we push it and get it back up and running again? Because the resilience issue then potentially can go away if business starts coming back. And for me, that's what we need to start to try and do rather than think about what may happen if something goes under. I just think, what do we do to bring it up? But we in the industry need to do more of that and need to be talking more about it. Because if we're not doing it, working in the industry, how can we expect others to be doing it? A wonderful rally cry. Well done, Karen. <laughs> so is, is Again, every week I get it in there somehow. <laughs> Is airport testing the answer then to get flights moving again and generating cash for airlines to make sure they're resilient? They need people in the air, don't they? I mean, that's the reality. Was it business travel is 70% of airlines profitability or something similar to that? So they need the business travelers in the air. And I think if we can link it somehow into our TMC world as well, that they're a big part of this that can help with that, then I think that helps everybody all round. People travel, yeah. they stay in hotels, so the knock-on effect is just significant. Yeah, I, I also see it as testing really bringing some of the confidence back. So, so I'm really counting on, on investments in this space, and we are seeing uh, encouraging examples, right, and, and, and initiatives and pilots popping up. So it's one of the drivers. It's not uh, per se uh, going to fix uh, problems, but it's it's helping the perception. It's It's really restoring some of the confidence which has been lost. I, I think that the, the principle of testing is absolutely what we should be doing. And it's interesting, I was talking to one of Karen's team members before this call who said, you know, he, his concern is that actually it's taken the government this long to get to this point. Whereas actually a little bit of test and learn and agility in the government's behaviour might have got us to this point a lot sooner. I think there are a number of things to think about when it comes to testing accuracy of the tests, whether there's joined up thinking between United Kingdom and other regions as well. What if the test is negative? So what's the impact of that on the traveller in terms of flexibility of travel or recuperation of costs or whatever it might be? The the, the thing that, that struck me the most when sort of researching for this podcast was a Forbes article that identified that there were 10 routes in the world, which were um, the most lucrative routes of airlines, and accounted for $6 billion in 12 months from April 2018 to 2019. And of those 10 routes, four of them are domestic routes. Uh, so, for example, San Francisco to Newark is a route which for United Airlines, $689 million during that period. 
London Heathrow to JFK, and we're looking at that corridor at the moment, is $1.16 billion for British Airways during the same period. You know, I've got a list of 10 in front of me. So, you know, you could actually, it doesn't have to be a complete rollout. We could do this across certain routes and still build in very fast resilience and a comeback into the sector. I think it's, it's a good point. You know, five of those top 10 routes all come through the UK. So, you know, 54% of by you know, of the, of all of those, uh, by value come through the UK. So that's why it's so important that we, that we, that we get testing. I think for the way that we look at it is that testing is this kind of solution to the invisible barrier of traveling. You know, travel bans have, have been enacted to kind of prevent the spread of COVID-19, but now it's time to, you know, to really take it to the next step. I think we've seen some, uh, some, some press recently around, uh, is it COVID dogs? It's uh, one of the Scandinavian airports. I think it might be Copenhagen. I can't remember which airport it is. And that's fine, but I don't, that, I don't think that's going to massively turn, turn the dial because you don't really want to get to the airport and then find you can't travel. You know, we're seeing some of the, some of the airlines doing on the spot coronavirus testing. Lufthansa are, are seeing that as vital in order for them to get long haul passengers flying again. Swiss. Uh, United have done it as well. Around, I think it was San Francisco to Hawaii. They, they're bringing kind of rapid testing. And, and I think the, the two elements that you need is one, it's quick and two, it's cheap. There are certainly uh, testings that air, uh, testing at airports where you're looking at you know, potentially hundreds of pounds of dollars. And, and that's fine for a certain cabin class, you know, people who can afford to pay that. But for other, other corporates, that's maybe not sustainable. So I think the kind of the, the speed and, and the cost, and we're looking at you know, saliva testing and, and things touted as under ten dollars a, uh, a test, and that could potentially be built into the into the fare as well. But the next phase, and this is something I'm just kind of just starting to hear about now, is is how do you get that test, and how does the how do you did as a traveller digitally you know, carry that with you, uh, and how does that then feed into the whole reservation system? So we're starting to hear something. Uh, a, there's a Swiss not-for-profit called uh, Common Commons Commons Project, or and Common Common Pass is is, is the product, pass. Yeah. which seems to link all of the elements of the travel ecosystem together. So as a traveller, you kind of you know electronically will tell you there's this quick go no go. Do you have a, the right test? Is that test accepted by the country you're going to? Are you free of coronavirus? And then can you travel? And the reality is, is this needs to be embedded into our ecosystem pretty quickly because vaccines are going to take a long time to be everywhere and be effective and we need this now. So this seems to be, the, certainly from my perspective, the smartest solution out there and there seems to be a lot of impetus from, from governments, health authorities and airlines to get this done. How that feeds into the GDS, I don't know. I've got a conversation with my GDS this afternoon so I'll, I'll kind of report back next time to see where, where they are on this. But this seems to be kind of what we're all looking for to you know, restore that confidence and allow the planes to fly with a you know, reasonable low factors. The Castle Sports World Airlines Festival said he anticipates more widespread testing being introduced within a matter of weeks. So I, I think you're right. There does definitely seem to be an impetus. And that, um, that uh, common pass framework you know, where it adds real value is, you know, it's a trusted, the, the, the data is from a trusted source. And it's also going to satisfy the health screening requirements of the country that they're entering. So it, it creates that joined up thinking. So it seems like a really, really positive step forward. And also yeah. being data secure as well. And so you, know, you carry it with you on your phone. Uh, there's yeah. no need to 
people getting to airport, they've got an email COVID-19 test on their phone saying they're clear and the airports or the airport authorities won't let them, won't let them travel because it's not on a paper, you know, they don't have it in writing, you know, in, on paper, so, which is so, so frustrating. We've been contacted by a startup actually as well that's out there that have, it's got exactly the same principle and it's a company, it's a serial startup, the guy has done it and he's just thought of something new and it's all about holding it in a digital wallet that has actually the fact that you have the test. So I think we'll see more companies out there come through with these ideas as well. But quite frankly, anything that's simple that proves what travellers have is what they would want and that would definitely resurrect people to come out flying again for sure yeah exactly i think that's that's what it comes down to so governments will need to somehow lead this in the space right but speaking with the airlines they are very much pushing for this and and it's really the government bodies and and the airports who would need to be somehow aligning also within their community i find uh, personally that often people are uh, just lost between the different standards so if there's if there's really one or maybe two standards globally that would definitely help. Even the testing requirements are so variable today. So I think, you know, the more streamlined it is, the more uh, uniform it is, the better for all of us. I think that's right because, I mean, none of these individual solutions are scalable really, are they? And and that's what's going to be important sort of going ahead. You know, we can't have, like, as Paul says, tests costing 186 euros and things like this and uh, not being accepted in different parts of the world. We need to have something that's a very low cost and everyone everywhere is going to, to accept. And this is, um, and I guess this is the reasoning behind the UK government uh, announcing this global travel task force. So, and uh, what, what do people think about that? Do you think that's the right approach? I think it, it, it depends, you know, how fast they move, what they end up implementing, because um, uh, somebody quoted the other day about the government task force, and they hope it doesn't take as long as the decision to, it was Alex Cousins from F, uh, FCM, so hope it doesn't take as long as to, for the decision for Heathrow third runway. You know, I think it's a, it's a valid point. The principle is sound. Should have started six months ago, but, you know, well done. You've come to the table. At least you've recognised there's a need. Hopefully you understand what the difference between business travel, leisure travel, meetings and events travel, because they're nuanced and they have different factors. And now let's see what the, you know, engage with the sector. Let's see what the action is and make sure it's it's robust and it's going to drive traffic as quickly as possible. And I think the challenge is as well is it's great that the UK government has done something, but then it's about the other governments, isn't it? Because, um, you know, there's some scepticism I've heard from some of the airlines around whether the US, as an example, would agree to the corridor. And so it feels fantastic that we've got it. But what is their influence then on the US government if that New York-London corridor is one that's going to be the first to open that helps those carriers operate there, for example? So, um, it, like you say, Paul, it's something, um, it's late, but now it is around how quickly do they accelerate everything? Because quite frankly, it's needed now to save more roles. Otherwise, we'll just see more people leaving. You mentioned that London New York route there, you know, in, in, in the context of the routes that uh, Dave was mentioning. There. I mean, do you think it's, it's vital that that London New York route is, is reopened? 
I think the reason why it's so there's so much focus on it is because it just happens to be such a lucrative route um, with financial organisations. I mean, having worked in the investment banking world, the, the New York London was always the number one route in in their you know in their portfolio of routes that they operated. Um, so I guess that's why it is. But I think. If it's high profile and the principal works there, then I guess it means that it will work in other places and it will kickstart it. All the airlines that operate that route, it's the most profitable for them. That's why there's so many um, carriers that do operate it. But just get one route doing it would be great. I think if you extend the principal out to those 10 routes, routes the most lucrative routes, it's probably fairly true to say, I, I can't back this up with evidence, but fairly true to say that those destinations on those 10 routes are probably the biggest drivers of GDP in the countries associated with those routes. And so, you know, if you can think beyond the one and look at the 10 and then look at the next 10 and kind of, you know, release in that way. And obviously you've got to monitor the, the, the transmission of COVID through those routes. But I don't know, you know, I'm sitting here thinking it can't be that difficult. I'm sure it's a lot more complicated than I think it is, but it's got to be a logical place to start. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, for, for Grey Doors, you know, London, New York is the most profitable and our biggest city pair that we do in, internationally. So it's, you know, we wait it coming back eagerly. Amex GBT seems to have been, been taking a lead at, you know, re quite high levels in this, you know, to which, you know, they should be ap applauded in, in, in getting, you know, the government, you know, the, the UK government and, and sort of the, um, the, the governor in, the, in New York, Andrew Cuomo, to come together to agree or potentially agree a framework whereby maybe only TMCs can book and, and, and travellers can pass through that route. Now that's, that, that does funnel a lot of traffic through the TMC, which is, which is no bad thing. But, you know, the sooner that happens, the better. And then if we can see it opening up to those other routes, at least you know, for the TMC, it will start to generate kind of more revenue, but also more importantly for the airlines, because we need a strong supply chain. It's no point us having traffic and the, air, and the airlines are struggling. You know, we need them to be financially strong. You do wonder if actually the government's inv invested in underwriting the cost of testing would be a far more efficient way of driving longer-term benefits in the sector than looking at underwriting wages when there isn't any business coming through. I mean, so, you know, the, the, these tests might be £180 each, but if it, then there's probably a pretty good business case for them paying some or all of that cost to, to get the business flowing. And Daniel, can you? we talked about London, New York there, but what about um, from Schiphol? Yeah, I think there's also logic of connecting hubs. Um, so, um, what we have seen also that the hub carriers have basically lost their, most of their banks in their major hubs. So that means also that in terms of connectivity in an, in an environment where many non-hub direct flights have been basically disappearing is, is also affecting very much the airline's ability to get from people really on, you know, from, from their initial origin to, to the real final destination. So I think there's also a strong willingness of airlines uh, that I'm hearing about to, to connect their hub um, operations. Again, that's maybe not the, the most profitable, but it's, uh, you know, it's the most useful when it comes to, you know, fully functioning hub, hub carriers. So looking ahead where we may see some consolidation or some failures in the, in the airline sector, what do you think uh, the effect of that will be on fares that uh, the companies are paying. 
how long's a piece of string? You know, it depends. It depends on the route. You know, there's been there's been examples of where if you take the UK uh, UK domestic market when BMI failed or bought by British Airways, we saw then zero competition pretty much on full service airlines between London and Scotland. But we haven't really seen massive price dinks there. I think everything is is the laws of supply and demand. Um, I think airlines are not allowed to collaborate on fares to keep fares artificially high. That goes against a ton of, a ton of rules. But I think you'll see, as everything, nature hates a vacuum. You'll see other suppliers pile in. Uh, maybe some new entrants. That'd be quite interesting. You know, we're starting to see JetBlue have, have announced they're going to be flying into into the UK next year, which would be really interesting for for, for that particular market. But as to what will happen with pricing, prices could go up, prices could go down. I don't I don't think any of us can really give an accurate view on that over the long term. I think the problem is that the the normal rules of supply and demand uh, and their impact on pricing don't necessarily apply here. And, you know, you can, you can look at some long term uh, views, which are in, in an airline industry that has str- struggled to make decent profits at the best of times and then had to deal with all of the impacts of 9-11 and SARS and MERS and wars uh, at the worst of times. You, know, you could argue that actually that it was a long time coming that it, we might see an increase in airfares over a longer period of time anyway. And certainly the airlines moves to break down the fare and provide additional ancillary services is, you know, was definitely an effort to increase the revenues to make a more robust businesses that provided more returns to their shareholders. At this point in time, I think they're happy getting cash through the door. So if they can get bums on seats and get people paying for it, I'm not sure they're too worried about the price of the ticket per se. And, you know, if routes go bust, because it could be for all sorts of reasons, either there's not enough people or it could be airline operational inefficiency or cash problems. So you don't know whether another airline will take over that route, whether it's uh, viable to take over that route, whether some routes will disappear, whether some routes will be replaced by ground transportation and car driving instead of flying or train or all of this stuff is up for grabs. Incredibly interesting, but very hard to predict. Yeah, there's there's also an effect of uh, being more supply shown in in in, in um, the market. So uh, last minute uh, cancellations are are quite quite uh, frequent uh, in in low low load factor um, flights. And there's also a very late booking pattern for corporates, right? Which makes it very hard to predict uh, how average pricing is. Is going to to play out. So I think the, this is, as, as Paul said, a very peculiar environment. We've been um, we've been doing some manual tracking of the fares, actually looking at what's going on each week. And um, interestingly, in general, you if you do year over year comparisons or week over week comparisons, they're clearly down, except international routes, which is where there's not so much capacity. And so their rates are actually much higher than where they were before. And so I think there has to be a consideration of, do you negotiate more fixed fares in place so that you've got a ceiling with your airlines? Because I think, you know, we, you know, whether we're sitting in procurement finance, wherever as a travel buyer, um, you need to have some sort of protection there as well around the increase in fares. On the flip side, you've got the sustainability targets and the push for biofuels, which actually cost more money. And so you've got that 
consideration because you know we're all still driving the airlines to be more carbon neutral etc well that is around using biofuel then and that does cost them more but there's so many different things that impact this you know it's always worth monitoring these things to get real data um, which is why we've done that and then figure out how you can protect yourselves in the mid to long term from that which we're thinking is the fixed fare element Thanks to everybody for making that uh, an excellent discussion as always. I think you know what came out of that for me is that business really needs to get traveling again and we all, whether that's buyers, airlines, TMCs and governments, all need to work together to make that uh, a reality. So thanks to everybody for, for contributing to that. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Fantastic.